listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Chick Radio. Oh, you're on Reality Chick Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Now we have our regular feature with Tane Webster. Oh, my goodness, Tane. It's always so good to talk. Have we got some feedback with some questions, please? Yes, we do, Rodney. So I thought what we'd do is answer question number two from Simon, who asked a really good question last time. So his his second question is, I heard you say that the party leader and party president now have tremendous power under the MMP system. What influence do the party members actually have? Do they get to vote on matters or have any influence on party issues? What purpose do party members serve? Well, party members almost have no power. Um, Their purpose that they serve is to volunteer and to help and to, you know, make up a party. And, of course, you need 500 members to register. So that is a requirement. There's also a requirement under our electoral law that things like the list uh, be chosen democratically. And what that's uh, taken to mean is that the board who select the list or determine the list ultimately for deciding, you know, the order, the ranking of getting into parliament is decided upon uh, by the members. So in a way, the members have a privileged position and a power in that they get to determine the board and the president. And in that way, they influence the list in turn. When it comes to matters of public policy, the membership are a great thing for discussing policy and party policies often come from the membership, like Act's famous three strikes policy came from a a member who had just returned from the United States and put it up at a conference. And everyone thought it was a great idea. And it was researched, became policy, and then became law. So, you know, in that way, members have an access, if you like, to the political apparatus. But ultimately, the power of decision-making resides with the president and the leader and the caucus. However, they're mindful of members, just like uh, a government is mindful of citizens, because ultimately, that's where their fate rests. And obviously, they can also contribute by let's say some good candidates came along and they wanted to... Oh, yes, I should have added that because it's very, very hard to vet a candidate uh, because someone who wants to be dishonest and uh, not tell you the truth uh, can readily slip through, whereas members uh, locally, they can know who's being put forward and they can be telling you things that the candidate may not wish to disclose. So um, it's a great check on dodgy dodgy uh, candidates coming forward because whew, we've had some close calls in that and I'm sure all political parties have had some close calls and all political parties have had people slip through that vetting process. Yeah. These larger political parties, they also have committees based around areas of policy, correct? Yes. So, you know, that again is a a feed-in mechanism. Um, But whether those policies become party policy is ultimately up to the hierarchy. But again, you know, they'll be mindful and there's a dearth of good ideas. And so when a good idea comes up, uh, the party will snatch onto it. Hmm. 
also, especially if there was, say, 30% of the membership that wanted something. Yes, but even then, um, successful parties know when to go against their membership. And that's a very, very important point because all successful parties actually stand against their members on certain issues. The reason being that your target voters have a different to your members. And so if all your members vote for you, it's not enough. And so you've got to go out to a wider catchment. And a successful party is polling. A successful party knows who it's targeting. A successful party knows uh, what it needs to win those voters over. And it may not be the number one priority uh, for the membership. And so there are crunch points and a party will be explaining to the members, you know, actually that's great, but we have to win. We have to win votes at the next election, A, to survive. Uh, if you're a small party, B, to get into parliament, if you're a small party, or C, if you're one of the big parties, to get into government. Here's what we have to do. And I'm sorry, it's not exactly what our members would want. Mm. Think of it like this. Labour and National, John Key to win government, had to win voters who had for three elections voted for Helen Clark. Mm. Right? Now, not one of their members would have voted for Alan Clark. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to the third question from Simon. So Simon says, is each party like a club, i.e. the members in the party pay their membership fees and do some volunteering, but all the real decision-making is made by the upper echelon? If so, how many people does the real power within the party lie with? It is like a club. Uh, I think most political parties, if not all, are what's called incorporated societies. I'm not a legal expert on um, organisations, but that what's, that's what they are, which sets legal obligations upon them. Um, and yes, the power does, at crunch times, reside, funnily enough, with the leader, you know, because the leader, she or he, is carrying the can, uh, ultimately, and so just like a, a chief executive carries the can, um, the prime minister carries the can, it rests with the leader. But successful leaders know when to make a captain's call and know when to bow down to what the members want. And that's part of the deft part of politics. And in a funny way, it's quite an odd process how power is gained and how it is used. And very often, oh, you know this in your own life, there are people who can have a dramatic impact on decision-making way out of proportion to their position. But they just have that charisma. They just have that ability to win people over. Uh, they can be extraordinary. And a lot of great political leaders and great leaders have that X factor that allows them to carry power, to wield power, and to have people to follow them and to put their thoughts and ideas second to the cause. And that's political leadership and leadership in general. Interesting. Who are your favourite leaders through history? 
Oh, so many. Um, and not all good. I love Julius Caesar. I mean, obviously, oh, yeah. I didn't know him, but he was just so amazing and significant and uh, magnificent human being in, in every sense of the world. Um, I greatly admire, which is a hard thing for someone of British extraction, uh, Napoleon. He was an astonishing leader, uh, not just general, but leader. Um, I'm fascinated by World War generals, uh, World War One and World War Two, some of whom were just incredible leaders to inspire and lead men and to be making decisions where a mistake can cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives. Uh, Winston Churchill, obviously, is a standout. Um, I greatly admired Margaret Thatcher. When she got elected, I was a lefty and I opposed it. But over her prime ministership, I became aware of how important it was to have a free market and what she was attempting to do. And I loved her bravery and courage and her steadfastness. I loved Ronald Reagan and what he did for the world. Um, and I've just read the biography of Lyndon Baines Johnson by Robert Caro. It's several volumes, and there's a volume still to come. It's the most magnificent piece of scholarship, most magnificent piece of writing, most magnificent explanation of American politics, and the delve into a very complex character, good and bad, in Lyndon Baines Johnson, someone I knew nothing about. And he was an extraordinary man because he could lie and cheat. He could um, say the right things and he could just gather power. He was an extraordinary person. And that book is a wonderful insight into an amazing personality and into an amazing time of American history. So, you know, that that that's some. Uh, here in New Zealand, I always admired Roger Douglas because um, I think he stood for something, and I think he changed New Zealand's trajectory for the better through very, very tough times. And while he gets accused of making uh, life difficult for New Zealand, actually it was all the decisions that had been made until he came along that made it difficult, because politicians were making the easy decisions for them, but piling up the debt that ultimately had to be paid. We've got the same thing happening now. Interesting. I think that's a good uh, note to wrap it up on. Yeah, there's a go, and I'll, I'll think of others. But so nice to talk to you. That was uh, Politics Explained uh, with Tane Webster. Thank you for listening. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And don't forget that at 4 o'clock we've got The Crunch with Cam Slater. He's got Avi Yamini. That'll be something. And Winston Peters. Let's hope Winston Peters is going to get us our inquiry into the vaccine injured. That's what I'd like to see. Uh, and remember, send us a text, 2057. Send us an email, inbox at rallycheck.radio. We love hearing from you. And we love hearing from you. But if you can spare a bit of cash, go across to the webpage and make a contribution, and we'll keep going on the air. So thank you for listening to Politics Explained with Rodney Hyde and Tane Webster. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.